Resident Evil Tech Talk. Lighting Specialist to Arc Residential Tech Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. On this week's podcast, Keith Esterly joins us from his home office in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where he serves as Chief Learning Architect for the Home Technology Specialists of America. HTSA is a respected custom integration trade consortium, formerly known as a buying group in North America. On this podcast, I've spoken with HTSA Executive Director John Robbins, and I also have strong ties to the group's Technology Director, Tom Doherty, who until recently lived about 10 minutes away from my home here in Carmel, Indiana. Both John and Tom are greatly respected in the industry, and especially within HTSA, but one of my favorite people to listen to at the group's conferences over the years, and a name that just came up recently on our podcast with Scott Sullivan at Sound Vision is Keith Esterly. Keith has a unique role within HTSA in that he was brought on board to help members learn fresh ideas, but, but specifically become better at selling and relationship science. It's a craft that Keith honed in a couple of more typical stops on the career path of a custom integration specialist, but also on another less typical, more corporate uh, role that he had outside the AV industry. I don't want to steal his thunder, so I'll let Keith explain his career path and his role more specifically, and let us know how he got to where he is today. Keith Esterly, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, Jeremy, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great. Uh, I can think of nothing better to do on a Friday than do a, a broadcast across that will go everywhere. It's such a good use of time. I love it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I love it. And and um, yeah, so so just to, to refresh folks' memories who have listened to the podcast recently or those who didn't, Scott Sullivan and I got talking and he's one of these, these integrators who's been in the business for a long time. It took me way too long to have a conversation with him. And and we had, I, it was one of my favorite podcasts that we've done, and it was just a couple episodes ago. And we got on a tangent talking about um, how important um, some of the things that you had brought yeah. into his operation in the sales side. And it um, just, just really went on about how, how great it was. And, and it, I thought, you know, why not have the guy himself on and talk about relationship selling and, um, and how you got to where you are? Because I think your career path is pretty interesting in that you know, you've had some more typical stops, like your first one in Audio Concepts, Long Beach back in 89, and Bryn Mawr Stereo, and yeah. Tweeter, um, many big name uh, locations. All the greats. AV Retail, yeah. Um, but the one that, that always jumps out at folks who don't know you uh, is the nine years or so at Walmart as Director of Talent Development. So um, I want to talk about all of that. I, I want to know like what you've picked up along the way on the AV side, but then how do you get into a job at Walmart, maybe just start there. Like where do you, how, how did, how do you end up at Walmart? So first of all, thanks to Scott Sullivan. He's awesome. We can circle back to that. That was a, that was a, a terrific event. But, uh, the, the story that lands me at Walmart is really, it starts when you think you're going to be a filmmaker as a college student and, uh, you go to Penn state to study film and you show some talent for it, but not nearly enough understanding of what it means to live in Los Angeles when you're 24. So, or even anything about the business. So when I graduated with a filmmaking degree, spent a lot of years mumbling around doing independent this, you know, personal project that, but in the meantime, what do you do? So it, it turns out that when your friend, 
is close friends with the owners of Bryn Mawr Stereo, that's what you do. You know, my, my, a okay. buddy of mine was friends with uh, the Lokoffs who ran Bryn Mawr Stereo. And it was 87 when I started there, which is shockingly long ago. <laughs> you know, now whenever I have to put my age in, select my birth year, it takes like a week to find the birth year. <laughs> But so Fred Lokoff, <laughs> scrolling. No, yeah, I can't believe it. They should start at the bottom for the old people. <laughs> yeah. But so Fred Lokoff was kind enough. I, I'm not sure he even knew I was coming, but uh, I think maybe he uh, let uh, our industry legend, Richard Glykes, know to look for me, that I was a friend of his kids' friends. And long story short, they were kind enough to let a completely clueless Keith Esterly uh, start working for him. And, and in some ways- I was good at it. I was very friendly with the clients and, you know, loved to laugh, understood the importance of having a good time. But I certainly wasn't an audio file, an audio expert. Uh, but I'll tell you, I learned a lot from those guys. And to this day, uh, guys like Jay Carey, who is an industry legend, uh, I guess he was of Nortech fame, now nice. He was my very first manager. Uh, I learned a ton from him. You know, how do you even start talking to a client? You know, Richard has had his, had an impact on me, teaching me. Uh, I still use a, a particular line that he gave me in 87, uh, but uh, it was terrific. And from there, uh, I decided, okay, time to move west. So I packed up everything, sold my stuff, drove to LA, and continued selling stereos there uh, with a great outfit called Audio Concepts, which you brought up. At the time, it was owned by Steve Working and Cheryl Working, uh, and a co-worker of mine there, uh, Martin Byrne is now a legendary rep in Los Angeles. He's like one of the reps to the stars, you know, uh, which would make him mm -hmm. roll his eyes. But he's terrific. I learned a ton from him. And basically, fast forward through years of selling stereos and learning what I could, selling cell phones when that was sort of a career, uh, I ended up get getting a call from my old Bryn Mawr stereo friends telling me that Tweeter Incorporated – which, or rather Tweeter, et cetera, had bought the place out and they, that I needed to come back as a trainer which sounded absurd because at the time, I don't think I'd ever been to a good training. I'd never seen it. I couldn't believe they would hmm. insult me by saying, come back and be a trainer. My joke is that in too many places, it seems like the training team is the people that are sort of too too unskilled to sell, but too nice to fire, right? That, <laughs> okay. And I was like, forget about it. I'll never. And they told me that these guys are different. Paul Schindler, Chris Bauer, Jeff Rogers, these guys, uh, to name an initial bunch you have to come check it out. And they weren't they weren't lying. This was an operation where training reported to sales, parted with sales. Uh, they were relied on to drive the business, not just to check boxes. And I spent 10 years working with them. It was just epic. Uh, and a lot of the relationship science I do now was birthed then with many of the terrific mm. people that uh, were part of that training team. But to jump to the Walmart question, uh, in yeah. 08, by, the, by 08, things that uh, the tweet, as we used to call it, started to be really rocky, right? Leadership changes and acquisition turmoil uh, was starting to add up. And uh, a friend of mine who had been our HR guy at, at Tweeter in the Mid-Atlantic jumped over to Walmart where he knew the president of the Northeast. About a year after that, he gave me a call and he said, you have to come work here. They desperately need you. And I said, there's no way. That's impossible. Well, he was right. Uh, when I... It, it turned out that they were really, they ran an operation that was equally as professional as the tweeter team in the, on the training side. And they were looking for somebody who had an outsider's point of view. And 
as unlikely as it was, I told, I still remember, I told the interviewer that he, he asked me why I would even consider the move. And I said, at some time you have to jump from the Titanic over to the iceberg or else you're doomed. <laughs> and I don't, they weren't used to people talking like that. So I think I made at least an impression, if not a positive one. And they were like, okay, this guy thinks outside the lines, colors outside the lines. He's nuts. Maybe he'll last a year, but he can at least spark the, the local team or something. Well, to their credit, they tolerated me for almost 10 years. And they gave me the opportunity to run the Northeast, then a bigger chunk of the Northeast, huge sections of the country. I had, you know, 40, 50 plus classroom facilitators working on my team. I mean, it was in a lot of ways terrific. Uh, by the end of it, I was involved in like nationwide training programs for onboarding, for management, for leadership. And, I, and as you and I were talking before we uh, pressed record, I got an opportunity to be part of one of the greatest talent operations probably going in the world, right? Fortune One Company. So when it comes to hiring and managing and talent selection and evaluations, all the stuff that Walmart just takes for granted, they have like a gigantic operation just to do that for the business. Well, it turns out that nobody in our industry, none of the small integrators that we serve have anywhere near the luxury of having that type of a support team. So to make a long story longer, I somehow, you know, they wanted me to move to Arkansas, which wasn't really in the cards. And after a long search, I circled back to Andrew Davis of Gramophone, said, listen, it's been a while. Is anyone looking for an aging trainer? And the, uh, the upshot of our conversation was that John Robbins, Tom Doherty, and the board had just gotten together in San Diego to discuss what is it going to take to make HTSA relevant. And unanimously, they said, we need to get a, an education program together that focuses on the people and that elevates the entire group, if not the entire industry. But they're like, yeah, how do you find that guy? And, An and Andrew's like, uh, he just called me. I, th I think I have, I think <laughs> wow. I have the guy. Because if you think about it, yeah. so I grew up as a sales guy. I was bad at it for many years. I needed to understand. I needed to learn the game. So then when it came time to train people on it for 10 years, I had, I had been forced to learn how to talk about it because I wasn't a natural. So we learned mm -hmm. to really help people understand what it is that worked. And then as I tell all of my groups now, I could never go do their job. I would never presume to say, oh, let me just come into your business and watch me sell like a wizard. I've had the op opportunity to not have to do that. I get to just mm. sit on the sidelines and look at what people do and figure out what makes people tick and what actually works and what are the crazy mm -hmm. ideas that no one would ever dare try that actually might be genius. And I get to work that stuff out and then share it with all of our members. And it's, as I often tell people, it's the greatest job in the industry. You know, I get to bring all the the industry knowledge and experience I've gained, and it's all due to all the great people out there uh, that I get to work with, plus all this crazy Walmart experience with talent development and management and leadership and you know compliance, all that crazy stuff. Hmm. It's just, just what a wonderful position to be in to be able to share all that with all the people that are HTSA. And, you know, and beyond that, it elevates the entire industry, we think, which is an important, it's like a mission, you know, to, to make just yeah. to make the universe a little better for having been in it for a while. It seems like because you haven't had to be that salesperson for a long time that you can 
feel the feelings of being the customer instead and look at it from that side of things easier than someone who just has been selling forever in this industry and is so immersed in the audio and the video and all of that stuff. So you can say, this is, this is what I would need to understand as a customer, as a client. And then you flip it around and work with the person presenting, right? So that, that relationship building and trust and all that, you can, you can really get a hold of that. Yeah. You, you still understand the industry too. You're not like an outsider coming in and what's this thing you sell, you know, not have a clue. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> right. we see those consultants come in and or or special speakers at different conferences and it's like they they've they sold pools or something that's their big thing and they made m- millions on selling pools and it's great it's sort of a related type of a yeah. expense but it's not the same as as this industry and all the challenges of what you said where they just don't have the the resources necessarily um, exactly that you've seen at walmart so I, I still I can't wrap my head around what it would be like to work at Walmart at, in, in a more executive level, um, corporate level. So, well, let me pause. You know, I, I would be, never claim to be at the executive level. <laughs> okay, okay, I yeah, tell, I didn't know how to how to actually. I always tell people because, I was the least important guy on some very important teams. You know, I got to be the eighth person <laughs> invited on the seven person company planes. Like, if somebody else could have make it, they were like, "Does Esterly have to be in Arkansas? Get him on the corporate jet." <laughs> yeah, but you weren't the greeter at the door either. So like I'm trying to kind of like put put it in perspective. You're in you're in meetings. But so um it, the thing thing is like most of us think of Walmart and especially when you start talking about our our industry, the AV business, you you think of it in comparison to a really high-end showroom experience and you can't like even come close with a Walmart. Walmart is for your average person to walk in and buy stuff at retail and but yet what you're saying is like the professionalism of the corporation, you, you've got to respect that because they are successful and they've done this thing and repeated it across the country. Right. And I don't even know how far out they reach beyond the U.S. But, um, you know, what what is it that um, you maybe saw right away when you left um, Twitter and sort of got in there and, and said, oh, my gosh, this is a whole other world. And, you know helps you become a better trainer as a result. Uh, So the first thing I noticed as I waited in the little waiting room for my first interview was that I had no shot at this job. I couldn't even get my head around what it would be to be a trainer for, I don't know what, we must have 400,000 people in the Northeast. Wow. And there was a sign on the wall. Walmart's big on signs, right? Every slogan's got a picture. Every, everything's on a sign everywhere. But it said something about the trick was to get all of the great products out to everybody in the best way they could. And I was looking at it thinking, well, there's no way I could do that. And then I was like, well, that was what we did at Twitter. We knew everyone because there was, you know, maybe I had 350, 400 sales guys and I knew every one of them. So I'm thinking about it. I said, well, there's probably 300 district managers in the Northeast, probably fewer. So I thought to myself, as I sat there, I said, first of all, I can do this because I don't need to know 400,000 people. I just need to know that 200 or 300 person group of leaders, which I've already done. And they will get the tweeter treatment. They'll get the high touch, high level of service when it comes to learning and development that we gave the clients a tweeter and that our integrators now give to their clients. So they weren't hiring me to run 
mass market training. They were hiring me to run high service, you know, high level training. So first of all, I was like, all right, I can do this. So that was the first step to was realizing that they're just people. And once you look at it through a lens that you can understand, you can go let yourself be great, which, and we had great success there in a number of programs. But the, the big thing that I took away was I didn't even know that things like talent planning existed, right? That the, these guys were masters at, and sometimes to, to, to my, and to sometimes my entire functions detriment, they were, they were compelled to continuously mine for talent and turn over the team and plan for who's going to move into what role next. We would spend weeks every year analyzing the talent attributes across gigantic geography to the point where they, they were planning a year and a half in advance to fill openings that hadn't even begun to show up yet. So that the discipline involved in that was entirely new to me. And while it certainly isn't my wheelhouse, right? Like that, those weren't my favorite projects. It was amazing to watch and to learn from. And, you know, they say play to your strengths, but don't let your weaknesses sink your ship. So I think one of my weaknesses was in planning organization and viewing things with that level of discipline. So that was quite a thing to be able to, to, to experience, to begin to get good at or adequate at anyway on that scale. Then to come back uh, to work with John and with Tom and with HTSA, I remember when they brought me in, their, John's sole focus was on the selling piece, the relationship science piece. And I was like, look, well, we have, you know, there's, there's management, there's talent, there's all this stuff. And he's just like, look, let's just see if anybody even cares about the selling thing. Let's not even worry about the rest. And, you know, as much of a, a risk it was, I guess, for me to jump to Walmart, it was probably as big a risk for John and the board to invite me to work with them because they're like, what is this? Who is this guy? It's very hard to describe what I do until you see it. And they took a shot. And luckily for me, not I wasn't surprised because I knew what this stuff was capable of, but you never know if people are going to decide to let you play. And everyone did. So when we had the success we did with the selling piece, the relationship science selling piece, people started to ask me, well, gee, my biggest problem is that my managers are just losing their minds. They, they haven't had the training. And then it was during the pandemic, we can't get people. We can't hire people. Well, suddenly it's like, well, I have this whole structure of what it looks like to, to mine the universe for talent, which when you can scale it up to 1.5 million employees, you can easily mm. scale it back to a place that's worried about three new employees a year. It's the same mechanism just so much easier to execute, which to me was elementary, having been there and seen it. But yeah. to all my awesome new partners, this was a whole new thing. Not to all of them, but to right. plenty. So we've been having right. a ball just expanding the scope of what I get to, to help people with. Uh, last week in New York City, I work with Kim Michaels Group, Keith Cottrell, all them at, uh, at yeah. ENI, as we call it, uh, Electronic Environments mm -hmm. of New York. Terrific bunch. Uh, you know, New Yorkers with a Philly guy coming in, naturally skeptical and resistant to start as I would have <laughs> expected nothing less, right? I would have been disappointed, yeah. I guess. And we worked on nothing but the management piece. Just, you know, how okay. do you get people who are the best doers, promote them to become managers and expect them to do this entirely alien job? Nothing right. to do with their history. 
So uh, we spent two days working on that. So now that's a big piece of what uh, of what HTSA offers uh, a huge gap for our industry as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a uh, it's a terrific is sort of my go to word this week. So I'll say it a lot on the podcast today. But what a terrific opportunity for me to be able to take all this stuff I happen to stumble through or stumble into and learn and kind of get good at and find a group for whom it's exactly what they want. You know? Yeah. And you have a, you have a very uh, open minded group. I feel um, in HTSA just it's well led by John and it's, it's a very um, willing um, group. I feel that is receptive to ideas and developing, uh, you know, technology in terms of the lighting, obviously side of things that Tom was pivotal on getting going. And now with Lightapalooza spinning, spinning off from HTSA and being a industry event. But, um, I had Keith Cottrell on the podcast actually as well, not too long Mm -hmm. ago after we had connected at, um, your conference here in Indianapolis and Keith and I had been friendly over the years while he did a lot of CDA training. I know he's very receptive to training, having been an educator himself in the industry. So, uh, I'm sure he wasn't one of the skeptical ones, but I can imagine the rest of them might have been. Yeah, he, <laughs> so it never hurts to share a first name. You know, I always talk about yeah. You know, I talk <laughs> talk about the Cialdini influence factors till people are sick of hearing me talk about it. But it's okay. a key influencer, right? Anything that you have in common with somebody, what a so it's just a huge trigger to like the other person. So he and I hit it off <laughs> uh, immediately, and and maybe that's the reason why I like Scott Sullivan because my brother is Scott. So, you know, people named okay. Scott, I think immediately, yeah, we're brothers. But yeah, so Keith <laughs> comes from a big company background too. So he's understood, uh, the, you know, the need for training. He was a, you know, a training guy for Cedia for many years. So he sort of understands what, what you can get out of it if it's done right. So, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think Kim was reluctant at all, but it's never easy to carve yeah. two days out of your week. <clears throat> oh, sure. Excuse me. Uh, it's, it's never easy to carve two days out of your week. Yet they did. And hopefully, you know, by, by noon on the first day, I think even the sort of the crustiest veteran started to find it hard to pretend that it was bogus, you know, as people try <laughs> to do. The, the herd turned and pretty soon it was the, the outliers who were not interested, whereas often you have to be an outlier to act interested in, in an event like that. Well, you, you kind of have to you take people out of their comfort zones, I guess. And that's part of the challenge Mm. there initially. But what you're saying about taking a doer and making them a manager essentially is something that I've always wrestled with because I'm not a integrator. I'm not out in the field, but I am a um, writer and editor and I like to just do the work. And then if someone says, okay, now you've got these people reporting to you, it's a whole other thing and it's not my wheelhouse, you know? And I, I can see that being the case for a lot of folks that, our entrepreneurs in this industry who just started doing the work and then mm-hmm. suddenly they had to hire people and manage people. And that's a whole next level. And well, yeah, and you know, it, <laughs> so I'm sure you say well, it creates this whole puzzle that those folks that they don't even know they're in, like they've already begun to undermine their own success because they themselves were the doer that was their business. So then they had to hire people without, in most cases, not all, without any benefit of management training, management study, they just, you know, did whatever they did. And 
if it didn't work, they wouldn't still be here. So whatever they did kind of worked. So then the next people they promote, well, the only thing they have to model on is whatever the other guy did. So you end up with this sort of, uh, what's the word? Like an echo chamber of management where all you do is what you've always done. And yet, those, you know, who has the opportunity to break away for a week or a month to figure out what the world does to solve these problems? So by the time you have like this third generation of managers working there, it's just been a series of doers who are just the boss. And they have to, you know, like they say, what's the, the, the sort of negative phrase? Even a blind squirrel finds an acorn, right? Once in a while. Yeah. That's a little exaggerated for this, but some people stumble upon being terrific managers. But it's that's it's too hard. Like it's I just tell the guys, it's just not fair. Like it's not fair to the new manager to be told, just guess. Maybe you'll get it right, maybe not. You know what I mean? There's <laughs> yeah. too much stress involved. So we have a right. we have a great time. And something that's part of my selling skills piece, my management skills piece, is just uh, what uh, I get. I got this phrase from a friend of mine who's in the business. He's a training guy. Does a lot of virtual reality uh, rendering stuff now. Uh, Dave Chase, okay. which you may know yeah, Dave yeah. from Training Allies, I a do. little shameless plug for Dave and Brian Ambrose, his bud and my old friend. He said to me, Keith, you can teach people anything you want. There could be all kinds of upside, but if the pain outweighs the gain, no human being will do it. So yeah. a huge part of what we've been working on, even back to the tweeter days, was how do you focus on not boosting the gain as much as reducing the pain to help people see how doing it the most effectively is also the easiest and most painless. And it turns out that if it's the most painless for you, it's almost also the most painless for the other person. And suddenly both people are happy in the relationship, whether it's a client provider or if it's a a manager, direct report. And suddenly the stress goes away. Everybody drops their guard, right? It's, it's not a, a boxing match. It just becomes this conversation. And both people decide, you know what? This isn't bad. I like it. Let's do this again. So that's that's kind of what we bring to this thing with, with our guys is I don't go in there and tell people, listen, do this a lot more, with a, do it with a lot more difficulty and you get this much gain. <laughs> like we go in and I'm like, wait till you see how easy this is going to make your life. And it, you're going to get transformational benefits from it with less aggravation. No one believes that at first. It's easy for me to say. But then it starts to reveal itself. And I think that's why we have such traction. Well, we will continue our conversation with Keith Esterly after the break. Do you want superior smart home automation at a great value? Shelly Wi-Fi relays by Alterco Robotics cover DC to line voltage, allowing you to control lights, outlets, appliances, garage doors, pumps, and much more. There are Shelly sensors and power measurement devices to help you measure temperature, humidity, lux, or motion, and electrical consumption from single wire to three phase with neutral. You can use Shelly with a licensed driver for Control 4, Elon, or other premium systems, as well as your customer's existing hub, voice assistant, or any platform that accepts REST, MQTT, or CoAP. Shelly can make IoT very easy. Available now at Blackwire, City Electric Supply, and Worthington, or at ShellyUSA.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with HTSA Chief Learning Architect, Keith Asterly. Keith, we were just talking specifically about your um, meeting with Electronic Environments New York and um, Kim and Keith there. And um, 
without giving away anything about their business that they don't want public, is there more specifics that you can get into about how you go into a company like that? You, you say you want to reduce the pain of the process of uh, working with employees and management and all that, but um, you can't obviously just have a cookie cutter approach when you meet with a company. How much do you have to prepare before you go to understand their challenges or do you have it happen right there on the spot to have it just open forum and conversation and then start helping them to fine tune how they do things and give them suggestions? How's that work? So what's interesting, so let me back up a little bit before I say what I'm going to say. There is a lot of prep involved. Ideally, when it's a selling event or a management event, I always get on the phone with whoever invited me in. In this case, it was Keith. And as many people that are stakeholders to that as possible. Now, I didn't get much time to talk with Kim uh, this time, but when I do this, I often get, you know, a couple of people involved, the principal, their right-hand people, just to understand what it is that's giving them pain. What's keeping them up at night with the team? What are the things that they, like, sort of what's the trajectory of the team? How have they gotten where they are? What are they facing? What are the things that they would love to see happening a year from now, but are not. And I like to work backwards from there whenever I have any event. You know, I say, I don't want to know all, like, I don't need to know everybody's personal issues, right? It's not about identifying who's at fault. I say, look a year ahead and what are all your people doing? And then my job is to do something in a room with his team based on everything I know that inexorably leads to those people doing that a year from now. So mm. what I've learned, which is kind of surprising, is that it's m- – now, you use the word cookie cutter, which I, I wouldn't say, but it's not that far off. I found that I have to modify this stuff only the most minimal amount because it was built to be as universal as possible and apply across the board. And since it's primarily about human interaction, it's – it's largely agnostic to not only the company, but to the industry in which it would get delivered. Of course, being from the industry, the examples and all flow freely, so it makes it much easier. But what here's what I learned. It's not the magic necessarily of the facilitator. It's the fact that no group can view your program through anything other than their personal lens. So hmm. when I came to John and I was talking to John and Brian Hutkins in my three-hour-long interview at lunch in, in John's favorite restaurant uh, in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania, he and I were thinking, man, there's going to be a lot of modification that has to happen to your programs, but you know, we'll see how it goes. So I was kind of uh, you know, trepidatious, there's a good word, right, about how <laughs> this is all going to go. And so I got out all my materials and I realized that it didn't need to be changed at all. And I'm hmm. pretty sure that with maybe the an exception to a date or a font, I didn't change anything the first go-round. I think my first uh, group was Paulson's. Dan Paulson invited me out. He was kind enough to be my initial test victim. And I didn't change anything. I just wanted to see how it went because it was beginning to occur to me they'll look at this and see themselves in all of the concepts. And Hmm. the more I would try to curve it to each company, the less perfectly it would fit. And and it it totally held true. It, you know, as we did the program, it was as if it had been custom built for them. 
Then I went to, mm. you know, Definitive, an old member of ours, went to Gramophone and just went hither and yon. And what was, so there's two things that happen. One is I realize I have to learn what the company dynamic is. What's their pain point issue list? You know, what are they great at? What And really where are they trying to go? Mm-hmm. So a lot of that language gets put into the program, but none of none of the screen stuff that we go through. And embarrassingly, there must be two hundred and fifty slides in this event. It's just like one visual, one idea after the other. It's it's awesome. You don't have to change any of it because the concepts are universal. But that said, here's what was pointed out to me. It's changed every time. Every time I go through and deliver this with a group, unbelievable conversation comes up. And we'll we'll tackle a concept that for that group is a hot button issue. And next thing you know, there is a whole new item to be added to it or a whole new spin on an old concept so that I actually had a guy, uh, you guys listening to this certainly will know my good friend, John Heron from Trinov. He was around at Twitter when we initially built the early versions of this conceptual program. He attended it right before the pandemic. So he had seen it 20 years before. So he was going to come in just to get a, you know, like a refresher and see what he thought of it. And it was great to have him there because he's a good buddy. But I got the greatest feedback from him, which was, this was both exactly what we tried to build in 2000 or whatever it was, or 2003, and yet entirely different. He, he said he expected to be completely in rerun mode. And instead, he said, every time something came up, it was new and different. And it was such a compliment to be told that I had created this thing that was at once based on these great ideas, but totally different and woven in with new psychology, new ideas, new concepts, just from all the years I spent banging around and almost unconsciously adding it. So it's it changes every time. You know, I just got done with guys in... Uh, Scott Geltz's team, audio or AV Outfitters down in Bluffton, South Carolina, Hilton Head. Came, what a great event. Came up with a bunch of new twists there. You mentioned Scott Sullivan's group. All kinds of new ideas. I was just getting feedback from some of his team just this morning. You know, we, we mm. were there in October. You know, and every, so every group that I meet with, it's a different event based on the same material because all they can do is see it through their own lens and use it to tackle their own challenges. So I learn right. as much as they do, but don't tell them that because then they might they might charge me to show up. <laughs> so give me some ideas of these concepts. I, I'd love to just drill a little bit further down without giving away your your expertise for free here on the podcast. Just what are what's an example of a concept that that resonates to this day from those tweeter days? So oh something that we started with all the way back was that we need to change the goal of the conversation with the client. Uh, and it's funny, we never called it relationships. Re- edit moment. Easy, easy for you to say. Right. <laughs> You've never said relationship selling before. All of a sudden you had to say it. <laughs> right. The, it's the easy ones that get you. So when we build it, we never called it relationship science. We called it like solution selling or tweeter selling, something or other. And it was designed to create a whole different model to move away from selling the most expensive box to selling an entire solution, right? Which is a big 90s term, solution selling. And 
the catchphrase that I still can't get out of my head and use all the time is that we needed to learn to sell people everything they wanted and asked for, but all the stuff they needed to make it work like they were picturing, but didn't know about. So we needed mm-hmm. to create a model like that. And so, and all of us that worked on it, that was our goal. You know, And I think back, I'll forget people, but Chris Bauer from the Tweeter team was one of the fundamental uh, creators of all this. Uh, at some point, it became mine to shepherd through to the future, but he was instrumental in, in putting this thing together back in the day. And we realized that what we focused on was always in the past, the transaction which immediately makes it an adversarial conversation. You can only close the guy or the woman if you win. And it's like, they have to lose, I have to win. So we would try to mitigate that all through our early days at Twitter, but it's really hard. Like you could say all you want, but basically it was all about how do you get someone to spend the most money on the thing? And we realized Mm -hmm. that that was the wrong goal. Because if all you look at is to close the transaction, you make a lot of mistakes. It's easy to start doing things that are counterproductive, that are not in the client's best interest. And that starts, people are very sensitive to that. They feel it happening. You lose them quickly and you don't even know it. You think, oh, that customer was a real jerk. When the fact is you were being super transactional as the salesperson. So we said the goal has to change from being close the deal to create a relationship with someone to become their expert friend in the business, whether they buy from you or not. And as soon as you shift from close the sale to become their expert friend in the business, whether they buy or not, all of your decisions become easy. Like you never, you feel no pressure to close the deal, to push, to smuggle influence. You're just there to help. And suddenly honesty is obvious. Suddenly simplicity is the obvious choice, right? And the goal really is how are they, how do you make sure that they're better for having met you that day? And the beauty of this is when you do that, suddenly we're right back to this idea where the person you're dealing with drops their guard. The boxing match stops. Suddenly they're talking to a trusted friend, somebody who perhaps is a personal trusted friend. And what happens is then hopefully you close on the relationship, if you will, and you establish this back and forth that's going to go on for many years to come. But even if you fail at that, You've done everything right. And the likelihood of falling short of the relationship, but still landing with a transaction is really high. So it's really just about how do you elevate your aim? Instead of shooting right here for that close the deal, how do you elevate and aim at this long-term expert friend relationship? Suddenly, it changes everything. And even if you come fall a little bit short, you still land in closing a lot more deals than you would have. And the pain goes away. Yeah, one of those um, CDA management conferences way back, the best author book freebie that we got was the Trusted Advisor book. Mm. Uh, and, and I felt like that just resonated for years for me with how I even experienced um, being sold to as a customer and whatever it was that I was buying. And and it was, it, it always, I mean, I remember way back when I was spending what I felt like was a lot of money on a bicycle yeah. when I was living in New York city. And it wasn't even that much relative to what you could spend. But to me, it was like, Ugh, I don't know if I need this, but the guy that so- sold me the bike that I bought a brand that wasn't even a brand I'd ever heard of because he was just so relaxed and explaining that the way that the bike industry had evolved and 
why things cost certain amounts and kind of just, again, educating me mm-hmm. on how things worked. I trusted that guy and I ended up buying from him because he made me feel comfortable and I didn't have that clenching. I don't think I want to spend money on this thing yep. feeling. Um, and, and so that resonates a lot. And, uh, and I, I, one of the things that Scott Sullivan mentioned to me specifically about your training that I'd love to hear more from you on was how his um, installers, his uh, service techs had become his best salespeople in a way or referral network because they were seeing and touching the client more than a salesperson actually did um, or the owner did. So they're out there in the field interacting and to be able to have that relationship that the client trusts them and um, feels comfortable around them, I guess, is a key as well, right? So I always tell the folks, and it's funny that he brought that up because he said it better than I normally do. He said, you know, Keith (laughs) says your install team and your service team is actually your referral creation team. And I was like, did I, it's funny because what, I listened to this like a month ago, whenever you did it and it's still in my head. So I'm thinking, did I actually say that? Because that's pretty good. So the way I, (laughs) the way I describe it is I tell the technicians that they are essentially that they're two things and one they love and one they get all angry about. Because I say, listen, you guys are the intelligence network. You're intelligence operatives for the business, but you're also cashiers at Walmart. So let's talk about the first one. And they're just like, wait, what, what did you just call me? Like, as if that's right. It's because that's an insult. So to do the last one first, the reason that the cashier at Walmart is so important and having worked there for so long, I, I mean, I must've heard this a million times. They're the last person that interacts with the customer. And they knew very well that that determined the person's perception of that trend, of that visit. And if it was negative, you lost at least one visit to the other grocery store or to Target. And the next visit or two would be significantly smaller in purchase size because of how the cashier treated the client. So they spent major effort and lots of money. You may question the results, but you know, the way the universe has gone with no cashiers. But at the time yeah. they spent huge amounts of money and time on getting those folks to really be better. And when we did it well, not only did the clients and the customers say the experience was way better than ever, but revenue, basket size, like average sale, return visits all went up. So I tell mm-hmm. the techs, I'm like, listen, that's your role. Not to be the stereotypical negative version of that, but be that person who is the most crucial determining factor as far as whether or not this client is going to talk about you in great ways, is going to want to buy more, is going to ask someone, should I have done more out back as far as TVs? That's what those Mm -hmm. guys do as the Walmart cashier. They're the person that turns the client either, as we say in my event, either green or red. But mm-hmm. then, as you said, the, the way he brought it up was like the referral team, the in, their, the intelligence squad, once they're into the house, like at first people fear installers because it's like they, they realize they just agreed to let a bunch of guys with tattoos in their house with power tools and mallets. And like for a second, you're like, <laughs> what have I done? But then once our guys get there, they quickly become the trustable people, right? Because people with tools, they don't lie to you. Salespeople, they always lie to you. These are the st- the stereotypes that were 
stuck within our heads. It's funny, even when I ask salespeople to tell me the first words that come into their mind when I say salesperson, it's always slimy, snark, shark, liar, even people that do it for a living. That's what's in our heads. So the tech team has this great advantage of being viewed as completely unbiased and honest. So we always keep the technicians in for the full first day of my event because that's where we go into the basics of a selling conversation. You mentioned your cycling salesperson, how he was no pressure, very friendly. Mm -hmm. But I'll bet you he did very particular things that are crucial to making you leave with a bicycle, which is doing you a huge favor. So we teach the sales team a little bit about what to do when a client says to you, so is this any good? Mm. Should I, what, what should I do here? You know, Jeremy at mm-hmm. the store, well, he said all this or at the showroom or at the office, that guy, Jeremy, salesperson, liar, shark, pushy. <laughs> he said we should get great speakers outside as well as inside and even TVs, but I don't know. So we taught the technicians not to just feel cornered, but to do the same thing we have the sales guys do in a nutshell, to ask a couple of questions about, you know, what are you already thinking, to ask a couple of questions that they might not have thought of, like, did you know you could even have a TV come out of the ground? And rather Mm -hmm. than then trying to close on a deal, simply close on a conversation with the salesperson. So what we try to do is, I guess in a way, I like to treat the technicians like I treat the most veteran salesperson. They can go do this. Mm. Of course they can go do it. So with a little bit of the skill set that we've taught our sales team, the technicians now feel way more comfortable when Johnny, you know, ultra high net worth individual property owner comes strolling onto the job site or into the home and starts asking questions. They know exactly what to do. And they send that question right back to the sales team and and they can respond. And now, so to Scott's credit to the, the, and the credit of that team, as, as well as they do and as awesome as their projects are, they're desperate to get better. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, it's not like that doesn't set them apart from our other dealers, but I, re- I remember so much how enthusiastic they were. It, we almost didn't get through everything because at every turn, Scott or one of the other team members in the, in the selling group would stop and say, we need to put this into play on the, you know, on the Glowacki project. My gosh. Like if we would have said to Mrs. what we said, uh, and then they will make a plan. And then that night, mm. I tell you, it was so great. I happened to have my wife and my neighbors with me in, in that, on that trip. We went out to San Francisco near where Scott lives and we did wine country. And then my wife and I went to see Blueprint. We saw, went to see Koa. But while we were working there with Scott and his group, that night I'm at, you know, the wine and cheese at the hotel with my neighbors and my wife. And I'm just reading to them these amazing texts and emails I'm getting from the team. I just rewrote my proposal for this, you know, six-figure job. Please look. And it was just festooned, if you will, with ideas and phrases and concepts we had talked about. And it wasn't just one guy. It was multiple people. And it went on for days and days and days as they kept trying it out with me. And one of them just today, like I said, was uh, connecting with me just this morning. And he he used one of the lines that we worked on back in October. Uh, just to kind of remind me that he knew what we were talking about. But I think they're having great success with it. You know, the, the technicians are and just a vital part of making the, of creating the relationship. That's a, never a short answer with me, Jeremy. You may have noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. I, well, I, 
I just kind of to wrap up, um, you have your specific um, pieces that you present at HTSA meetings, um, conferences. Do you also kind of weigh in on just the overall way that the content is presented for the entire conference at all because of your experience? I'm just curious on the machinations of of the group. And even when we're looking at Lidapalooza, which is clearly uh, very specific lighting technology, a lot of training in there that is not HTSA folks. Um, do you uh, do you have a role there to play too, just in terms of the way the thing is presented so that it's absorbed better by the audience? To an extent. Uh, when we put the thing together every six months, John primarily leads the agenda creation, but he absolutely w- runs it through all of the rest of us. Uh, so we try to shape it in ways that make it more likely for people to walk away impressed. Not that it requires a whole lot of reworking. John's a smart guy and he, he sees what works too. The one place where I would love to do better, but so far we haven't cracked the code, is that we invite people to come speak because they're great doers. And just like being a manager of after being a doer isn't necessarily easy, just because you can do something doesn't mean it's easy to come talk about it. So right. I, I think that we have an opportunity to, to help the folks that we invite to speak to be more comfortable, to reduce their pain. We tried it yeah. a, a little bit for uh, for Indianapolis and even for Lauderdale, but I don't think I did a good enough job letting people realize what we, how great it would be for them. It, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to approach a person who's terrific in their business and say, Hey, why don't you let me help you talk about it? You know, it, it's right. tricky to, to do that in a, in a non red brain way. Right. You're onto something, and it's it's a piece that we talk about all the time for a couple of reasons, right? It's not fair to the group sitting there to have somebody who's not prepared to be amazing, but it's right. also not fair to that person. You know, if we have this opportunity to you know to grab them for two hours or ninety minutes, and you know get maybe get all of our speakers together and let me run by some of the basics that we've used to train our great trainers over the decades, it's a pretty great idea. And now that you remind me of it, I believe I'll bring it up on our next uh, HTSA meeting because we intend to do just what you said, to do whatever we can to make everyone just that much better for their own benefit and, of course, for the whole audience as well. Yeah, when your title is Chief Learning Architect, it kind of lends itself to that kind of a responsibility yeah. as well with the group. Um, and and I say that and it came to mind, not because I felt like there were bad speakers at the conferences or I, I was uncomfortable with, with anything, but I felt that much more comfortable when you got up to speak. Cause I could tell you were a professional that did this, you know, that you, you knew the, the tricks of the trade to make us feel comfortable in the room, you know? Well, thank you. Um, I, I don't, I don't like, uh, um, a, group activity typically uh the the flipping of the coin i think was the little uh, one. stunt you That's were one. doing we did that yesterday or thursday with it with yeah. 150 people in charlotte <laughs> so i so i feel as an as a natural introvert i feel like a little clenchy when that starts to happen <laughs> when I, like okay there's going to be something where we have to sit around a table and and you know, come up with something. I don't know what this is going to be. So I'm a little nervous, but then once you get into it, you see the the humor in the whole thing and, and where it's going. And, and it does have, it, it, 
obviously triggered a memory for me that it happened, yeah. you know, like you can forget everything else that you heard that day, but it's so when you have a tangible thing. Right. And so, and that's one of the things. So the learning that I took from training trainers, which I did at Walmart for many years, and even before that with the guys at Twitter was the thing you sacrifice first when you think you have to save time is almost always the worst thing to sacrifice. Everyone is always eager to dispense with the activity, the coin toss, the tower build, the, whatever it is, right? Whatever. And you know me, right? I think that one of the keys to getting a group to open up their mind and drop their guard a little is to make them feel like they're a couple steps ahead of you. And then to reveal that, in fact, they weren't and that there was this really different takeaway, that, that always seems to catch people. So my stuff always masquerades as being goofy initially, <laughs> right? Which hopefully makes people think, all right, this is kind of cringy usually, but he said, will you do me a favor? Just, you know, this will be stupid. I admit that it's ridiculous. And I try to take <laughs> the red brain away from everyone because those are the best parts. But here's why I bring that up. The same thing's true in sales. What we do is, as soon as we get nervous, we drop the best parts. We stop talking to the client about, what is that cool thing on the shelf behind you? Or I couldn't help noticing you had three really cool Bernese mountain dogs in the yard. Or tell me more about these trips you take and how often are you back and forth to the States? And oh my gosh, I love Ireland too. And the whole time, that is the best part. But as soon as we get nervous, just like a typical facilitator might abandon the cool stuff because it's a little bit scary, I don't, I refuse to, I've learned not to abandon that stuff. So when we do the events with all of our dealers and with our groups, I'm like, look, like I'm going to do this. No matter how far behind we seem, I'll take out a chunk of information way soon. Yeah. I'll take out a chunk of information long before I'll remove an activity because I, as you said, that stuff, when you get past the cringe and you realize, oh my gosh, it was worth it, the, that is an analogy for not giving up on the tough parts during a sale. You know, right. They may have never seen somebody stick to their guns all day for three days in a row and constantly do it right. That's what I try to do every time. We never talk about it unless somebody brings it up. But that's like a secret message of these events is that it starts at 100% on you know Tuesday morning at 8 and Thursday afternoon at 12.31 p.m. It's still at 100%. I never let up. I refuse. And maybe nobody's ever seen that before. You know, if you have young people, young salespeople, young techs, they may be like, you know what? I've never seen anybody not bail when things got hairy. I guess it is possible. Right. And look, these guys, our teams, our workers, they deserve the best. They have a hard job. And the least we can do, at least I can do anyway, is to, is to give it everything I have when I'm in there with them. If I have the audacity to call them in from the field for three days or two and a half days or even one, I owe it to them to, to make yeah. it awesome and to have them feel like it was actually worth the scary cringe factor and that it was tremendous despite what they were afraid of, you know? Well, I think that's an excellent place to to leave it. And Keith, I really appreciate all your time today. And it's always a pleasure hearing your uh, your insights and stories. So uh, thanks again and best of luck for the rest of 2023. Well, Jeremy, thanks. I'll just end on this, at, you know, a little 
HTSA motto. Our whole thing is we feel like we need to elevate our people, our dealers, our business, the whole industry. So I, I like I said, I'm the luckiest guy. I think I have the best job. So thanks for having me on. It's been great talking to you as always. And uh, can't wait to see you again. Hopefully I'll see you uh, in Nevada for our spring conference. Well, I will be at first at, in uh, at Lottie Palooza, well, actually. Yes. So uh, even better. That that's the in, in in less than a month, I guess, at this point, and yeah. uh, in Phoenix. So we'll see you there, and hopefully as well after that uh, at the uh, Vegas uh, conference. Good so, deal, Phoenix. Thanks it is. again, Phoenix. It is. See you, man. Thank All you. All right, see you there. Okay, Keith Esterly is Chief Learning Architect at Home Technology Specialist of America. You can find him actively engaged on LinkedIn and learn more about HTSA at htsa.com. That wraps up today's show. Special thanks to Pretty Easy Podcasts for producing and editing this episode. And if you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the weekly podcast on your preferred platform and consider rating or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at the magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Friday email newsletters. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell. Residential 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 Residential